So, uh, we come to the book of Acts, and uh, these first 11 verses of Acts are rather explosive, if we read them carefully and thoughtfully. They're volcanic in many ways. Uh, We can read them casually, but what is being spoken of here is really big truth. It's not incidental. It's not insignificant. What we have is really big truth being proclaimed here. And it's big truth because it speaks into the philosophy and thinking of an unbelieving world in which we live, which has classified and decided that Jesus is fable. Jesus, at best, is mixed myth. He is someone who lived a decent enough life and died a specific death, and uh, his followers over time built up this great myth about who he was and what he could do. It's an explosive chapter and verses because it speaks into the philosophy of our day that we rub shoulders with all, all the time and on a daily basis, which says, this is all that there is. Just this life. Just today. And it radically challenges that thinking. And I hope that also that is very topical for us. Because we've heard a lot in these last few days and weeks and months about uh, us entering a post-truth generation, a post-truth time, when really truth is uh, indistinct. It's something that we can take or leave and make up and use and agree and disagree. Uh, and, and we've seen that uh, politically and we've seen it socially and we've seen it in society in which we live. A kind of or, uh, or, Orwellian newspeak where the media and politicians and others in power can simply say what they want and put it across as truth. And we're living in that um, volatile period of time when it's difficult, even because of the advances of social media and technology, to understand and know exactly what truth is. Where, where there are no absolutes, where there's nothing solid and nothing fixed, which may play into, uh, as I said earlier, the anger and, uh, and the frustration that is uh, uh, being birthed from that kind of uh, philosophical standpoint. So this, these few verses stand very much in contradiction to that. And uh, force us, I think, to, to think. Force us to consider and remind ourselves as Christians as well of, of the gospel and of uh, the claims of Jesus Christ and of, of what, how we stand and how we live as Christians uh, in the world which we find ourselves. So uh, can I first set the scene a little bit? Uh, for for the series and uh, for this uh, few verses. Because this is really, this book is about, is also about the life of Jesus. Uh, It's the life of Jesus, volume two. Because uh, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, as many of you know anyway, but many of you know also because we're studying on a Wednesday night and you did this on Wednesday, that this is the second volume of of Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, uh, who... Uh, wrote the gospel, and then who now writes uh, the second volume here, the sequel, as it were. And it's very significant because between his volume one and volume two, uh, we have nearly a quarter of all the New Testament. 
So it's very important and very significant and uh, interesting angle that we get from Dr. Luke on the life of Jesus Christ. What's the theme of his book here, Acts? Acts, sometimes called Acts of the Apostles. Well, his theme is Jesus, Jesus Christ. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And this is him going on to speak about what Jesus continued to do uh, through the church, through his people. And it's all about Jesus Christ. We, we read about that in Luke 24, where Colin read, uh, where uh, we were told the significance of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and of his ascension. And uh, here, it's really the, the, the ongoing significance of that uh, as people's lives are transformed and changed by the message of Jesus Christ and by the mission that he gives them here. And so kind of the Acts of the Apostles is really about uh, the church obeying what Jesus Christ and empowered by Jesus Christ to bring that message of good news. And they changed the world and turned it upside down. That's what they did. Twelve beleaguered, uh, saddened, confused followers of Jesus at his death who meet him in his resurrection and who then become world beaters and ordinary unschooled men they were as well. And yet them uh, and that community of believers, men and women together, transformed uh, the world uh, radically, turned it upside down. So the theme is Christ and the purpose of his uh, two volumes, I think, is really summed up um, I think in verse 4 of chapter uh, one, uh, of Luke chapter uh, 1, verse 4, which says, um, It seemed good to me also uh, to write an account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So it's, it's kind of a double letter, and it's, it's written to Theophilus, who very probably was a Roman uh, governor or someone in significance, most excellent he was. And he was either a follower of Jesus or one who was very interested in Jesus and had been uh, listening to the teachings about Jesus. So Luke knew him and Luke wanted to give him an ordinary account of everything that happened with Jesus in his death, his life and death and resurrection and ascension and to explain what was happening so that he might have real certainty. So he wanted Theophilus and you know, it becomes God's word. Uh, it is God's word that we have here. It's included in, in Scripture. And it is uh, what God wants all of us to know about Jesus Christ so that we can believe and have certainty about him. And that's very important for us in these very uncertain days in which we live. So, uh, Luke is clearly seeking to bring certainty by uh, thorough investigation of the life and work of Jesus Christ. He says that, I've undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, uh, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness and ministered uh, the word and delivered to them. It seemed good to me to write an orderly account. So here is Dr. Luke. He's an educated and he's a cultured individual, and he has taken maybe 20 or so years after, 20, 25 years after the death of Christ to uh, look at all the facts to, to meet with and to interview all the eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses to these accounts and to bring all these accounts together and to uh, investigate them and to correct them and to corroborate them. And 
once he'd written, these guys were all still alive, so they would have been able to read what he said, and they would say, wait a minute, no, that's not quite right there. No, I was there. I was there, and that, that didn't happen quite that way. You'll need to change that. So it, it, was, it, it was an orderly and educated and, and certain historical factual account. And that immediately to us and for us, and for us as we defend our faith in Jesus Christ, uh, is a challenge to those who will just shrug their shoulders and say, well, Jesus is just a legend. It's just kind of myth. It's just it's symbolic stories about a good man and we can just follow and uh, try and live like he lived. Wishful thinking on the behalf of, of poor and intellectually weakened individuals who need this crutch. Luke makes clear that that's not what he has done, that he has compiled an eyewitness, historically uh, veracious account of the life of Jesus Christ and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, either he was entirely delusional or he was a wicked liar. And if he's a wicked liar, then we need to ask the question, to what ends would he have done that? And we need to consider uh, what he is claiming here to have produced for us. Whatever else we do, whatever else we must do, we must recognize that historically, his account given here has been accepted by historians throughout the centuries and is an accurate account with eyewitnesses of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's a challenge. If you're not a believer today, it's a challenge. And I would ask you to consider the teaching and the claims not just of Jesus, but of the gospel writer here uh, in this account. So, that's just very briefly setting the scene. What he's speaking of here, and I think this is very important for us to remember and remind ourselves of, is transcendent reality, okay? Transcendent reality. What do I mean by that? When we have this uh, first 11 verses, Transcendent simply means surpassing the range of normal human experience. Okay? So that's what we have in the first 11 verses. We don't often hear in our normal human experience of resurrection and certainly not of ascension and definitely not of angels. So what we have here in these first 11 verses is transcendent reality. It is, it is, it is molded in historical reality and uh, there are clear uh, 11 historical verses, but they, they are speaking of transcendent reality. Now, as believers, we accept the transcendence. We accept that reality. And I hope that there's at least twitches of transcendence in our worship when we gather together. There's a sense of what is surpassing the range of normal human experience. But just because it surpasses the range doesn't immediately negate its significance and value. And these passages, these verses speak of transcendent reality. And it speaks particularly of three transcendent realities that we believe in as Christians and that are the foundation of our faith and that are a challenge to uh, share with those who don't believe because it's all connected with the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the first is 
the resurrection. In verse 3, we're told Jesus, he met with his disciples, and he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And also chapter 24 speaks about um, the fact that Jesus Christ taught that he would die and then on the third day rise again for repentance and forgiveness of sins, that that should be proclaimed. Now that's a stunning transcendent reality, is that Jesus Christ claimed to be God, who claimed to be the Messiah, and to whom all the Old Testament scriptures pointed towards, uh, came with the specific purpose of dying uh, and then on the third day being raised from the dead. He came because he taught and spoke of and declared and explained death in a spiritual way, saying it was a spiritual sentence, that it was a spiritual judgment against humanity and against a rebellion of God. And he says that it's because we have fallen short of the glory of God and we sin against God and rebel against God, we are left with this death sentence which we can't pay. We can't make ourselves right with God. We can't reach up to God. We can't make ourselves spiritually alive and relate to God. And so he says he comes to take our sentence and to pay the price by the author of life dying on the cross, offering us in his resurrection that seal of victory that he's defeated the power of death and paid the price for us, offering us forgiveness and eternal life and a healed relationship with God by his great gift and vertically, vertically, not very good at maths, vertically with God and horizontally beginning to put right relationships with one another as we love God and love one another. And The physical resurrection is a real seal of that. And it's really important. You know, many people will say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just kind of symbolic. Symbolic resurrection. Not so. The physical resurrection of Jesus, which reminds us that as the author of life, death couldn't hold him, and that the work he had done was successful and victorious and accepted by God, the physical resurrection is our hope of physical resurrection, and our hope that death is not the end. And you see what Luke says here? He says it very consistently and significantly that he appeared himself to them many times, offering what? Many proofs that he was alive, that he had risen from the dead, and to give them confidence and certainty. And that was really important for the founders of the New Testament church. It transformed their lives so that their Savior was no longer a dead and buried and gone Savior who, from whom all hope was drained from them when he died. But rather, on the third day, he rose and met with them. Now, you could spend kind of the rest of life speaking about the resurrection. All I want to say is to remind us that death doesn't have the final word. It's not simply a spoke in the cycle of life. It's not simply the end of of life for us uh, in a naturalistic way, but death for us doesn't have the final word. Death, in Christ's 
measure and understanding for us is a judicial sentence. So it has a spiritual dimension, speaks of our rebellion, but that he has come to pay the price for us because we can't and to offer us life and hope. So the judge, as it were, becomes the judged because of his great love for us. He becomes, he moves from the throne room uh, into the, the box where uh, he is pronounced guilty on, on our behalf. So Christ is the answer to death. So the resurrection is a transcendental truth that's hugely significant here. But also so is the ascension. We actually don't talk about the ascension very much, even in church. Um, and verses 9 to 11 speak about that. In fact, so does Luke 24. So it's repeated. Luke repeats it in Luke 24, but also in, so he ends one volume with it, and then he begins the next volume with the ascension, and he speaks about it in verses 9 to 11. He says, uh, we're told that um, when he said these things, they were looking, he was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven, behold, two men stood by them, white robes, and men of Galilee. Why do you stand here looking into heaven? as Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you see him go. So we have this very transcendent account of a physical human uh, being as God, who is God, physically ascending from them into heaven. Uh, The significant events of Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension are all accompanied by angelic presence. They're there at these significant times in his life. And he moves into a different phase, as it were, of his being, of his lordship. And he moves from his earthly work having finished uh, to sitting at the right hand of the Father where he reigns over life and over death uh, in his spiritual kingdom and power. And that's a hard truth for us to take. It's a hard truth for us to understand. We accept it by faith. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely transcendent. But the reality for us, and this is all I want to say at this point, is that there's more than just the material world, isn't there? We know that uh, death doesn't have the final word. We also know that there's more than just the material world. More than just what we can measure and see. We know there's a spiritual reality and a spiritual realm. We know there's, there's heaven. And uh, I think uh, deep down, we all know that. Even if we don't accept or believe Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we all know there's something more and we recognize that. I think many people are simply winging it in the hope that when they die, they'll get to heaven. In the hope that God will just, you know, be gracious to them and be kind and, and will accept them. Many people winging it and living as if all there is is the material world. But somewhere deep down, hanging on and winging it and hoping that when they die, they'll go to that great place called heaven. That, that's a great gamble to take when Jesus Christ has revealed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through him. And that it's in his ascension and in believing in all that lies behind his ascension and all his claims uh, about our need for a Savior and need for salvation that we can know that he breaks the path for us. He opens the door. And as we follow him, we also know eternal life. 
So there's a great transcendent truth that sometimes we're uncomfortable with and sometimes we'd rather just submerge. And many of us, and also as Christians sometimes, we live our lives as if there's nothing else. We live our lives as if today's all that matters, that our ambition and our career and our family and our future is, in this life is all that matters. And yet Luke reminds us and God reminds us that we live in the light of eternity and we live in the light of this life being actually incredibly short. And consider this resurrected, physical, ascended Savior who is in heaven, wherever and whatever that is, and looks like, and that he will return, because that is what the angels say here. He will return to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. No time to speak about that today. And then lastly, and briefly, we also have the third transcendent truth here. So you've got resurrection, you've got ascension, but you've also got the divine presence. Okay, in verse 8, Jesus is speaking to them and said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of all the earth. So we have this third transcendent truth, which is the presence of God uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, For every believer, we know that to be the case. We know that uh, when uh, God speaks and teaches and God's purpose and pattern was that he returned, you know, the end of John's gospel speaks all about that, that he knew what was happening and he said he would return to the Father, but he would not leave us as orphans. He would send his Holy Spirit. So that better than having Jesus sit beside you physically, which sometimes we would long for, he says, I'm actually going to send my Spirit to live inside you, to dwell with you, to bring you spiritual life. So physically he left, but spiritually he promises more. He promises the divine presence in our lives for all who put our faith and trust in Jesus, who will come in and dwell with us, we're told, the Emmanuel principle. We sing about the birth of Jesus, that Jesus comes in and he dwells with us. He lives in our lives by his spirit. God breathes spiritual life into us so that each of us as believers are moved, or or, as the Bible's terminology is, we're born again. We start afresh and where we were rebels against God, we, we become one, people who have a heart to love God and to love one another in the, in the way we were created to do. He breathes that spiritual life into us so that we love him and worship him. And we can't worship him here today without his spirit. And, and that's why it, it's so significant to know, to know and to remember that. Yes, it's transcendent, undoubtedly transcendent. But it, yes, we were also created for that. We were created to be in relationship with God and to have his spirit in our lives in this remarkable way. Forgiveness of our sins. Now, the, uh, he gives a sign of that. He gives a sign of this baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it's the water baptism that we will be doing today. That is a, is a symbol. It's a sign of what God does in our lives. The water uh, being poured out is a sign of the Spirit being poured out. It's a sign of the cleansing from our sins that we receive. It's a sign of uh, His great work in our lives. The symbol of that. And His command is that this sacrament is um, obeyed by all who come to Christ. All who believe in Christ are, are baptized. Uh, it's a 
uh, badge of belonging to Jesus Christ. It's a sign for every believer. And uh, in the purpose and pattern of God and his covenant-keeping model and structure, it is the sign uh, of the promise that is given not only to believers but to their children. It's a symbol of this covenant-keeping God who says, I will work in families. I will work in communities. and I will keep my promises that as we seek uh, to uh, educate and teach and pray for and lead and guide and be an example to our children, that this great promise of my work will be fulfilled in their lives. Uh, a reminder that he works in covenant. He works in family. He works uh, in community. The sign given to uh, families and, and the faith of parents uh, for their children and the promises that they hold on to God will, God will do for them and in them and through them. The symbol, the sign of baptism for children is not spooky. It's not mysterious in the level of, of um, uh, being uh, sacramental and, and, and bringing salvation to that child. Uh, uh, it is not salvific at that point, at that level. It is a symbol of the promises and the covenant and the work of God who spreads his gospel through the generations, the God of community, where truth is generationally passed down. It's a great challenge. It's a great responsibility. It's a great hope that we have uh, for our children. And uh, John and Kim uh, are parents who believe in Christ and who... uh, have that great privilege and great responsibility. And we're all part of that. We're all involved in that today. So as we reflect and as we come towards the baptism, there's just two things I want to finish with here. First, to remind ourselves that the Bible, the gospel, these 11 verses are a huge challenge to the secular philosophical underpinning thoughts of the society in which we live, which says this is all that there is. Now, we might shrug at that and say, well, that's what society believes. We don't care. But we should care. We should care for them and we should care for ourselves and our our thinking because we can easily drift into that philosophical mindset, just living for today and forgetting the transcendence that belongs to the gospel. Just because it's transcendent, doesn't mean it can be rubbished. This is the the mixture of factual, historical, veracious uh, accounts that are given by Luke that speak of transcendent reality of death, resurrection, ascension, and divine presence. I think we all need to look deep into our souls and recognize our souls and recognize... uh, who we are and in whose image we're made and the claims of Christ and the absolute nature of him as truth against the the thinking of our day in society where it says all truth is relative. It just happens to be whatever truth you want to believe. Jesus stands above that and says, no, I'm God. And I I came into the world once, but I came for everyone because... I am truth, and I am life. And and therefore, I would ask, if you're not a believer today, at least please don't dismiss the gospel lightly. 
Don't just throw it away like a, a sweetie wrapper uh, or the day's newspaper. Please consider the gospel and the challenges of the transcendent truths are, are spoken of here. And also as Christians, uh, we recognize that transcendent truth. And that's very important because what Jesus taught here, and I think you spoke about that on Wednesday night uh, very much, that he, he taught them, Luke 24 tells us all that he taught his disciples foundationally. But he also said, you need the Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. So he, he made this amazing balance, didn't he? Which he, he also spoke to the Samaritan woman about, and I, which I think Corey will be preaching on tonight, is that Spirit and truth must dovetail together in our Christianity and in our worship and in our lives. He taught that. He said, yes, you need to know the facts uh, and the truths of that are very significant, but you also need the Holy Spirit uh, to interpret and to use and to bring life to us. And therefore, that ongoing pattern in our Christian lives is prayer and the Word. We need the Word, we need the truth, but we need the prayer. We need to ask God for the Spirit to enliven us and to teach us and to enable us to worship. So we're not just eggheads. Far from it. We can't just be eggheads. We can't be, shouldn't be eggheads at all. Uh, we should be people who humbly come under the truth and that is revealed, and we require and need humbly the Holy Spirit of God to bring it to us. And we testify. We, we have a work to do. This is the, the ongoing work of Jesus through his people was to tell uh, the world about him, to witness to him, to recognize that this is our mission as a church. And we're going to look through Acts with that perspective, uh, our mission, our work, uh, that we are a people, that we, God works through us, we're a gathered community, that we are planting churches, that we are seeking to reach out with the gospel. And what we do has huge transcendent significance, which is great. So we don't want to be don't want to be spiritual geeks, okay? Verse 11 speaks about them at the end in chapter of the disciples gawking up towards heaven as the, Jesus disappears. And the angels kind of gently rebuke them, saying, well, what are you standing there looking into heaven? This Jesus who's gone up will return the same way as you've gone and remind the, the angels remind them of, of the teaching. So don't, don't misunderstand. Don't be sort of standing gawking up towards heaven as Christians uh, in some kind of sermon-tasting way or in some kind of seminar, um, uh, being a seminar hound and always just wanting to know and to know and never coming to an understanding of the truth. Don't be theology gawkers, which just just swilling about in, in truth, but never allowing that truth to radicalize and change the way we think and the way we live and to humbly live in love and in humility and in grace and in service of others because Christ is coming back. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, help us to understand your truth. Uh, may your spirit take it in the darkness uh, often of our understanding and bring us light. And help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.